You can find a Sphinx on the podcast <laughs> app. It'll give you three riddles. If you pass all three, it'll lead you to the podcast. <laughs> Good then... luck. Hey, I'm Mairead. And I'm Harry. And this is A for Effort. The show where we each have three words or phrases, present them to the other person, and they have to guess using their brains. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> What that word or phrase could mean, its context, and, you know, what it is. Today, Harry is presenting his words to me first. Yes, so today my overarching theme is politics. Okay. My first word, funnel of causality. Okay. If you'd like... The funnel of causality. Oh, thank you. That the was I think very it, helpful. it adds a definite <laughs> article, literally. That's what it does. <laughs> I also think it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, we're in agreement. Okay. Funnel is something that takes you from broad to narrow. Mm-hmm. That's true. I've also heard that. <laughs> causality is a link, be- a direct link between... A stimulus and a response. True. So, as relates to politics. It's a larger concept. Yeah. I think it was first used to describe a political concept slash event, if you will. But it's a larger concept of causality. It's like a an analogy for understanding a certain event. Okay. My guess, based on the etymology of funnel and causality Go ahead. is that something happens and mm. then people try to trace the events that cause that thing to happen until they have a very specific catalyst so it's people trying to figure out it's like a metaphor for attempting to understand the causality yes that is my guess okay interesting that's not it, okay. in a sense. Where the context of it is, in a more specific sense, it's uh, trying to understand voter choice. Okay. Where at the end of the funnel, the little tip, if you will, that's the vote. And as you get farther and farther away from the vote, mm-hmm. you get things, events or, or situations or factors that are more indirectly linked to that vote. Okay. So far away, right at the 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 edge, you have things like your upbringing and the political disposition of your parents, for example. And then right next to the lip, you have like the issues of that campaign and the leaders of that campaign, etc. Okay. Also, interestingly enough with this theory, they say that the beginning is actually more influential than the, the end, if you see what I mean. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me because when you said their upbringing yeah. or their parents' um, political orientation. I was thinking those things seem very influential to me. Yeah. <laughs> Perhaps it's because those two things are specifically related to early life, but it mm-hmm. sort of establishes a precedent for what is the norm yeah. or how you think about politics often. Yeah. It's from a model of voter choice called the Michigan model okay. of voter choice, where the number one contributing factor in us predicting how you're going to vote, us being, I don't know, academics and you being a voter, is your voter identification, your party identification. So I'm like, who do you, what party do you identify with? And you'd be like, 
liberals. And I'd be like, so you're probably going to vote liberal, which seems like a very simple and bad way of doing it. But it's possible for someone to say, identify as a liberal to vote conservative. Okay. So you can vote liberal, say you're conservative. It doesn't apply as well to the Canadian system because there are different levels of government for which you can have different party allegiances. So you'd be like, I'm NDP at a provincial level, but liberal at a federal level, etc. But that's basically the gist of the model. It's called the social psychological model. What is the Michigan model and what's the social psychological model? It's the, those are just two names for the same model. Ah, okay. It was researchers at the University of Michigan came up with the social psychological model. Okay. Now I'm going to demonstrate my learning. Oh, yeah, please. <laughs> so it's called the funnel of causality. It's a mechanism for understanding what factors influence people's voting behavior. At the tip of the funnel, you have the vote. And moving towards the edge from that tip, you have factors that influence the vote, where the proximity to the tip is analogous to the temporal proximity of factor X. Yeah, that's the funnel of causality. Cool. Yeah. Next term. Next term. <laughs> Protected consultation. Okay. These are hard. (laughs) (laughs) This is one that as relates to a a political system as a whole. My current thinking is, what does it mean to think of a political system as a whole? So I'm visualizing a blob as my political system. Good. And me being outside of it. That's That's where you're at. That's what's going on. Yeah. Political system as a whole. Okay. Consultation. If you go to a consultation, mm-hmm. just as a lay person, you're getting information from experts, usually, mm-hmm. on next steps to take in addressing a problem. Okay. Protected, because we're referring to a political system, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, or my inclination is to think that this is protection from public knowledge. Like... You can consult with somebody about something and mm-hmm. not have the public know about it. Kind of a cynical view <laughs> of a political system. So therefore? So then my guess is, I think I've just resigned myself to guessing incorrectly. <laughs> um, protected consultation, maybe the right within a political system for agents to consult with experts in gathering knowledge and not have to immediately disclose said consultations interesting that's not it it does not surprise me (laughs) that's not it that sounds (laughs) it's related to it's a term from a sociologist named charles tilly okay who did a lot of work on how societies democratize how do you become a democracy okay and he said one of the factors you need is protected consultation which is basically the ability of members of the electorate or the population to consult or speak or air grievances to the government without being, you know, unfairly punished for that. That sounds way better (laughs) (laughs) than my guess. I think your guess was very interesting and good, though. It was okay. I thought it was good. It was good. All right. All right. This one's fun. Great. It's also impossible to get. Impossible to get? Yes. Great. So this is the Know Nothing Party. Okay. Do you think it's impossible to get because... The name doesn't reveal any information. No, it reveals something very specific but weird. Like when I was first, it was talked about in a class. Yeah. And I thought I knew why they were called that. Yeah. So my question is not what the Know Nothing Party is because it's like a specific part of American history. So this is a party that arose in the 
40s in America and was very anti-immigrant, very nativist against recent arrivals of Irish and German immigrants. But why that they have that name? Okay, well, two potential sources for the nickname. Okay. Allies or adversaries. Mm-hmm. If allies, then it's kind of a glib, like, uh, you don't know anything name mm-hmm. because they're politics were perhaps being roundly dismissed. Mm-hmm. If adversaries, then the nickname is probably meant to be more derisive mm-hmm. and dismissive and state, you don't know anything. Perhaps they didn't have solid underlying arguments for why they held those political views. Mm-hmm. And also these seem like two pretty standard interpretations of mm-hmm. the nickname. And you said that you thought <laughs> you knew why they were called that and then were wrong. <laughs> Which makes me think it's neither of those. I see. Maybe it's an acronym because it only... <laughs> that would be a lot of letters. <laughs> That's how many members there were. <laughs> I feel like I'd like to give you a good clue here. Okay. They began as a secret organization. Okay. In that case... If they're a secret organization, then perhaps they had a policy within said organization that if you were questioned about the existence of the organization, then you just say, I, don't, I know nothing. That's right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was like caught on as a derisive term by their like political adversaries. But that's initially it was. If you talk to someone on the street, be like, hey, do you know anything about they were called the American Party. You know anything about the American Party? Be like, no, I don't know. I don't know anything. I, I know nothing. So there was the no nothing party. Got it. Good. Uh, well done. Yeah. If if all else fails in your poor policy, <laughs> yeah. it's harming a lot of people. Just throw the word American. Yeah. In exactly. Yeah. <laughs> America Act. What does it do? I don't know. Sounds great, though. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Great. Well done. That wraps up round one. Okay, my general category okay. is Latin American history. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good, nice. As you know, that's one of my specialties. <laughs> yeah. Good. That's why I picked it. <laughs> <laughs> good. And my first term mm-hmm. is transculturation. Transculturation. So trans being between or across, culture being culture, Asian being some process of culture. Asian is, you know, like a, it's, a, it's like Doofenshmirtz. Everything is an ator because it does that thing. If it's like a laser ator, it's a thing that does a laser. That's where I get my etymology from. It's from Phineas and Ferb. So some process by which cultures either mix, meld, or are created across some boundary. That's my guess. Yes. Oh, nice. That is what it is. Cool. I think your definition was spot on. Transculturation is a fusion of different cultures. And the significance within the context of Latin American history mm-hmm. is that colonizing forces would impose mm-hmm. their culture on the people native to whatever area was being colonized at that time. And transculturation, I think of it as having two main impacts. Mm-hmm. The first is that it makes it easier to accept the imposition of another person's culture because you meld into that elements of your own culture. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that can perpetuate hegemony, mm-hmm. i.e. soft cultural oppression. Yeah. Because if you're absorbing a culture that subordinates you mm-hmm. and you make that easier to accept, then you make it easier to accept your own subordination. Okay. 
The second term is import, substitution, industrialization. It's the process by which a country industrializes so that it doesn't have to import the goods that it will now manufacture in the process of industrialization. Is that true? Yes. Nice. That was good. I like uh, yeah, that. Yeah. That that <laughs> it's a pretty straightforward term. <laughs> Quick response. From around 1880 until the 1930s, was a period in, in Latin American history commonly referred to as neocolonialization because mm-hmm. there was just extensive foreign influence yeah. extracting resources mm-hmm. from Latin America, processing them, and then selling those processed goods back to Latin America. Classic colonial economy. Yeah. In the 1930s, the Great Depression happened, and so people no longer had as much money to import goods. Mm-hmm. And as a result domestic industrialization increased in order to fill those market niches. Boom. Yeah. And my third term is bureaucratic authoritarianism. Bureaucratic authoritarianism. So it's like dictates from the civil service almost so that it's the bureaucracy that's in charge rather than any political figurehead. Maybe a situation where there is a political figurehead, but... They're kind of controlled by the bureaucracy, or there is no political figurehead and it's just a bureaucratic figure. Which is interesting for Latin America, because a lot of the time it's the army that's actually in charge. That's my guess. (laughs) Yeah, so it's an authoritarian government Mm -hmm. that is centered around a bureaucracy as opposed to one prominent figure. You could also call it a non-personalist military dictatorship in this context. Could you explain the first? Yeah, sure. The one first thing you said again? In that it's centered around a bureaucracy as opposed to a single individual. Right, yes. Yeah, so you have some sort of institution Mm. at the highest level that still acts as an authority. I think you could have a leader of that institution, but it's seen as the institution governing it. If you have a military dictatorship, Mm -hmm. to my mind, that refers to sort of the entire institution of the military. Yeah. And that may have a leader, but it's the institution of the military that's leading the country. So that that be, forms kind of the legislative body. So that would be like within the umbrella of a bureaucratic dictatorship. Yes, I think so. Interesting. So it's like a dictatorship by an institution. Yeah. As opposed to, I think you can look at North Korea. Yeah. And view it as being a dictatorship. Yeah, a pers- very personalized. A very per- yes. As pers- opposed to... Egypt, which is very much a military. It's controlled by the institution of the army. Yeah. So then that would fall under the umbrella, as you said, of bureaucratic authoritarianism. I think it's prescient that you mentioned that in Latin America, it's often associated with military rule Mm -hmm. because I came across this term reading about the era from the 1960s through to about the 1980s. And in this time, many Latin American countries entered into an agreement with the United States called the National Security Doctrine. And it was an anti-communist endeavor. The United States essentially said, we will protect you from external threats, but you should protect from internal communist threats. And at the time, that was largely guerrillas, Mm -hmm. specifically... uh, Hotbeds, silverback guerrillas. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, guerrillas were increasingly (laughs) urban guerrillas, which... It's dangerous. Yes. (laughs) 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 Well, it is dangerous for everyone in that for the guerrillas, they are closer to their targets, useful, Mm -hmm. but also (laughs) you're closer to the people who are looking for you, dangerous. Dangerous. (laughs) 
Did you know also, if I could just interject, that silverback gorillas are the largest nesting animal in the world? I did not know that. Yeah, in the Congo. Okay. So if anybody is genuinely confused while listening, we are not talking about gorillas like the silverback gorilla. We're talking about G-U-E-R-R-I-L-L-A. I think think it's pretty clear. I think so as well. So, if you uh, don't know the difference between the two things, this whole conversation has been totally useless. Because, <laughs> Anyway, so urban gorillas, close to their intended targets, but additionally, as the intended target, are close. Mm-hmm. And governments found it increasingly inconvenient to have to adhere to human rights. <laughs> don't we all? And laws protecting human rights, and as a result, tended towards military rule, yep. where they could then capture and ruthlessly torture people. Nice. And so in signing on to the national security doctrine, the goal was to protect democracies from mm-hmm. the threat of communism, and the result was a slew of military dictatorships. Wow. Didn't really work out. So what you're saying is that for a lot of the 20th century, American influence in Central America was not benign. <laughs> America. <laughs> All right. So that wraps up the rounds. Were uh, we keeping score? Are we doing score? I don't know. Do you want to do score? I think I, I won this one, so I'd like oh, to do score now. Oh, I think now. you won this one as well. <laughs> Is that, that because, do you think that because you got all three terms and I uh, did got, not? Or? You got one. <laughs> yeah. Let's call it 3-1. Sure. Let's do that. So Are we, we competing now? <laughs> now, yes. <laughs> next we'll week. We'll decide at the end of next week whether or not we competed. <laughs> Great. Well, good game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... If you want to learn more about Latin American history, all of my terms came from a book called Born in Blood and Fire by John Charles Chastain. It is a concise history of Latin America, and it is very well written. If you want to learn more about my terms, if you want to learn about the funnel, you can read about the Michigan model of voter choice. You can read Charles Tilley's book. I think it's called Democratization in Europe, 1650 to 1800. That was the one about protected consultation. If you want to learn about the Know Nothing Party, you can read about American pre-Civil War history. It's about the 1840s. There's a lot of books about that. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you in two weeks. Or at and least by you'll see hear you, us. I mean, you'll hear us. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>